Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about work, psychology and life. It's been an interesting time in my podcast feed at the moment. Obviously, a lot of podcasters have gone away on holiday or something. And so um, I've noticed there's not a lot of things been dropping. So uh, rather than hanging on to some of these discussions until, what, back to school, till we normal life resumes, I thought I'm going to share a couple of things as they happen. And this is a fabulous example um, because it's a really good discussion that sort of transcends work really and goes into something more substantial in our real lives, if you accept that distinction. And it's a discussion with uh, Max Dickens, who's written a book that you've probably seen. I've seen it in a few places. It's become a cultural idea to some extent. And it's this book, Billy Nomate. It's been serialised in the Daily Mail. There's been articles in, I think, the Sunday Times, in The Observer. And it's really a book that confronts something that you might be aware of, that men certainly men after a certain age don't really have friends. The way that one commentator that's quoted by Max in the book says it is they titled a piece, men have no friends and women bear the burden. And that's why I think this discussion might be really helpful because even if you're not a man, if you've got a man in your life, a brother, a partner, a housemate, then it's sort of, sort of an interesting one to share with them about the role that friendship plays in men's life and how we might think about it in a different way. One of the things that Max said to me, just as the microphone went off, it's, it's really frustrating. You know, you, you have this conversation with someone talking through, sort of tearing through this research and this this thought that they've seeded. And then you stop recording. And sometimes people say just these exquisite, brilliant things. It's like, oh man, shall I ask him to do that again? But I didn't ask him to do it again. But he, he said something really interesting. A friend of his said to him, my best friend, I'm not sure that I'm his best friend. And that uncertainty, that doubt about our relationships is such a toxic force. It's sort of that anxiety about emotional revealing and and knowing where we stand with people often is an inhibiting factor. There's one maxim that Max leaves us with, which is... Um, a sort of an idea that I think we can all adopt and it's a very stealable idea. So a, a lovely discussion. I think you're going to really enjoy this because I think this is a call to arms to try to 
embolden and strengthen our friendships and recognise how important they are in our lives. This is my discussion with the author of Billy No Mates, Max Dickens. Max, thank you so much for chatting to me. Uh, I wonder if you could kick off by just explaining who you are and what you do. So my name is Max Dickens. I am a writer, uh, formerly a radio presenter, and also I used to be on the stand-up comedy circuit. So I write books. I also write plays. So I'm joining you, Bruce, at the moment from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I've got a show opening on Thursday uh, this week and also uh, just the author of a book called Billy Nomates, How I Realise Men Have a Friendship Problem. It's really interesting because the, the, sto- the book really is this really rich and very enjoyable caper into, I guess, your own friendship and the, 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 the absence of your own friendship. Um, in fact, you know, you, you give a quote of an article here that was so potent that I scribbled it down, which was an article that had gone viral at one point, which was, uh, men have no friends and women bear the burden. And, uh, it's like, like a series of things in your book, it forced me to reflect on my own life and reflect on other people's life that I know. So I'd love to just take a step back and, and hear the origin story of how you found yourself writing a book like this. So the book arose out of a genuine necessity and a genuine uh, challenge I faced in my personal life. I was intending on on uh, proposing to my girlfriend, Naomi. I was literally in a shop in Hatton Garden at a jeweler's with a female uh, pal looking for a ring. And we went to the pub afterwards and this female pal said, so, right, we've got the ring. Who are you thinking of as best man? And my mind went completely blank. And I just assumed I was, you know, blanking because I was a bit overwhelmed. So I went back that night, got a piece of paper out and a pen, and I made a list of candidates who were my good male friends. And I looked at the list. Most of them I worked with. And they'd think it'd be a bit weird if I asked them to fill that role. And the rest of them, I thought, gosh, I haven't spoken to some of these guys for two, three years. And I suddenly thought, oh, my goodness, where have all my friends gone? And then I Googled it, getting married, no best man. And there was something crazy, like 934 million results. Click on them. Loads of these guys are posting in wedding website forums, admitting they haven't got a best man. They, they don't know what to do about it. And it turned out that actually male loneliness or a lack of male friendship is a real problem. And I thought, right, well, I'm going to solve the problem. And by doing that, find a best man. Look, the book is a very, very funny, and I can understand, you know, you're, you're a sort of former stand-up comedian, and I guess you've sort of worked in various different parts of comedy if you're up there in Edinburgh. And the book is a very entertaining read. But it, it also, through that, I think whether the people listening to this are men themselves or, or like, you know, they've got men in their lives, actually, it invites you to reflect on certain things that have contributed to that loneliness and and firstly sort of ask yourself to appraise it yourself because this appears to be something that men they're on a sort of tapering scale that they lose friendships is that right yeah absolutely so so men's friendship problem can essentially be seen in two ways the first one is that men tend to have some mates so mates from the pub mates from work mates they play football with they often lack what you might call close friends, intimacy in those friendships. So a recent study by Movember, for example, the male mental health charity, revealed that one in three men say they've got no close friends. And they asked that same group of men, how many of your friends could you talk about something important, such as a relationship problem, a uh, health problem, a money problem with? And one in two men said they could think of no one at all. So that, that lack of outlet for that sort of friendship. And then secondly, 
what sociologists call network shrinkage. So if you look at all of us, our social network tends to get smaller as we get older, particularly around turning 30, your late 20s are the, you're the summit of your social life. It shows out, but men's social world shrinks a lot more than women's. So the kind of question you look at then is, well, what's going on for these two things? And there's kind of two main theories, really, and potentially a third one we might get at. Um, and they all sort of interact. So um, in terms of the theories, would you like me to sort of get into that? Let's do it. Let's do it. Right. Well, the first one is uh, to do with what you might call gender norms. So masculinity, which is uh, the the unspoken rules that maybe men bring to their relationships, uh, including their friendships. So, I mean, when I reflected on myself, I didn't think this was me. I didn't think I was that uh, archetypically masculine or brought any of these inhibitions. But then I went to a party and I remember my girlfriend said, do you realise what you like with other men? Like, do you see what you become? You become something completely different. Yeah, the bit of this that really struck me, it was that um, you played side by side how you interact with workmen who come to your house. This Adopting this sort of geezer geezer persona is something that I can certainly recognise as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what I kind of discovered is that I perform in a certain way when I'm around men and especially around archetypically masculine men. So that, I mean, the builder we had coming around to our house, I was desperate for this guy to like me and, and I would, you know, pretend to be obsessed with football. I'd, uh, I'd like, he'd talk to me about his car and I'd go, oh, that's very interesting. I'd go, oh, let's see some phone, so some photos on your phone. He'd say some, some pretty, <laughs> pretty backward things about women and I'd just sort of leave it unchallenged, just make those sort of vague noises that you do in the back of Ubers when, when the drivers say something that you don't really want to get involved with. But then he'd go to my wife and uh, have all sorts of amazing conversations about his kids, about recommending sort of tiles, like a huge aesthetic taste. And I realised that he was performing to me, I was performing wow. to him, and like our masculinity was between us. And this is kind of getting to this, this idea of what it is um, to perform your masculinity. We become uh, different sorts of people. So in friendships, what does this look like? Well, we tend to... Uh, not want to show affection in our friendship. So uh, I, I realised the only time I'd ever told a guy in my life that I so much as liked them was after six or seven pints. Um, you know, n- men don't like to be the one doing the chasing or the organising. We don't like to look needy. So we sort of look at the other person in that relationship, wait for them to do it, but often they won't. And then the big one I looked at was banter. So the, one of the rules of male friendship, and I think a rule that men bring a lot to their relationships is it should be light, it should be fun, it should be funny, this sort of jazz of casual brutality we bring to it. So these are just some of the rules we bring. So to kind of tie it together, these are things that get in the way of the more intimate conversations. You put a moat up around you through this performance. You can't quite get at them. They can't quite get at you. So you have this sense that maybe it's fun, but you don't quite connect on that real personal level. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you forced me to reflect on that. You know, I like a lot of people might say to yourself, you know, like I've got a sort of humorous aspect on life or I, I try not to get too bogged down in seriousness. And and I guess, you know, I saw that as a sliding scale with solemnity on one side and mm. um, the ability to see the sort of the trivialities of life on the other end. And so it was like placing yourself very much at the side where you just say, well, look, you know, we're all, we're all just in these brief interludes on earth and you know so this is all incredibly trivial almost every chapter i went through the book i was like 
that's really made me rethink this version of myself that I think I've constructed, where I think, you know, I've got the answers right. And actually it's made me think this constant desire to try and find humour in things or to try and show that nothing matters to me is really flawed. And forgive me sort of making it subjective here, but, you know, go on, talk me through how... The, the research you've done on this has helped you understand it better. I, I was the same as you, really, I think. And I just thought, you know, wasn't, isn't, wasn't this a, a positive thing? Like, wasn't this a strength of mine? You know, I can re- connect and relate to people with humour. That should be a great thing. It's one of the things that I love about being friend, friends with men is it is that kind of, that, that, that vibe that you have. And um, it wasn't so much research that, led me to the conclusion I needed to change here was I actually, through the pandemic, I had some time and I was being told by all these psychologists I was speaking to, the thing is about men is, you know, they, they don't develop the language of intimacy, the, vocab- the vocabulary of it, or um, the ability or permission to have these more intimate conversations. So I, I started going to a therapist to try and practice, really, and it wasn't for any sort of big personal reason. And then after four months, she said, the thing is with you, Max, is you can talk about things in, in an intellectual way. You can talk about them in a funny way. But the reason why people um, don't want to reveal stuff to you is because they don't think you can reciprocate. And she said, so maybe that's why you haven't got any close friends. Right. And it was a bit of a haymaker because I sort of sent myself tumbling back through my life. And I realized, yeah, that's what I do when I talk about stuff. I would get different sorts of hiding, of obfuscation. One would be intellectualizing. And one would be humour, both of them in, in, independently, great ways of being in the world and, and, and sharing with others. But I had no other gears on the gear stick. And, and it, was, it was that realisation fed back and reflected back to me by someone who'd l- watched me relate for, for, you know, up close for all these months that made me realise that's what I needed to develop. I needed to get the other, you know, fourth and fifth, fifth gears. Can I go there? Can I do the vulnerability stuff with other guys? Because someone says to you at one point, um, you know, that we've, we've got this ability to reveal ourselves to others and something got in the way. Something sort of it came. And, and I wondered through that whether yeah. these a generational element of this, that, you know, would younger people who appear to be more attuned to their emotion – you know, for example, you you mentioned being uncomfortable with hugging friends, but you know, I think if you witness <laughs> Gen Z kids and and you know younger kids now, yeah. they love it. They love sort of embracing their friends. And so, the thing that's got in the way for you and and a generation of of people like you, um, do you think we might be heading into a more emotionally empathetic time? So that's, I mean, this is a really interesting question, I think. And you're right. These sort of norms are softening. I spoke to a guy called Fernando de Suchez, who runs a marketing agency called New Macho. And their kind of gig is to try and make marketing and advertising more inclusive. So you see different versions of men compared to the sort of men that I used to see on TV. You know, the the classic example is is the Lynx campaign, spray more, get more. That sort of quite, you know, uh, exaggeratedly uh, masculine way of being a guy. And they did loads of research and they said a lot of the norms that I've been discussing, people do still believe. And actually, uh, these younger generations are a mixture of very modern ways of being guys, certainly in their attitudes to uh, sexuality, to women, to physical intimacy, as you've said. 
but they also have some of the more old-fashioned views that I've discussed. But, I mean, you, you mentioned the research there. So I spoke to a psychologist called Niobe Wei, who is from NYU. She's, she spent a career studying boys' friendships and also men's friendships. And what you see if you look at the research is up about to the age of four or five, if you see boys and girls being together or being friends with one another, they are, they are as equally emotive as each other physically and also in terms of how they express uh, verbally their emotions. And then there's an arc of disconnection, Neobi Wei says, and it peaks um, or starts to become most profound when puberty hits and the girls start looking more like women and, and the boys start looking more like boys. And suddenly boys then start um, being less willing to admit they want these friendships. And when she interviewed these boys, 14, 15, 16, they would start associating friendship with a sexuality, gay, with a gender, female, and with an age, young. And I thought that was really interesting. And then the question is, I think, mm. these sorts of thoughts, is it to do with culture, how we're socialised, brought up? Or is it something a bit more innate? Now, that's not very a trendy way of thinking at the moment. But you talked about the changing generations there. Clearly, culture plays a big part and these things are softening. But I do wonder if not only are these cultural ideas more uh, sticky than we think, but also there may be something a bit more innate at play here. One of the things that you present is the idea that certainly as men mm. go through their lives, they encounter a scarcity of joy they you know it's not only yeah. the friendships that go but a sort of yeah. a playful frivolity and um and it's really interesting as a result of that you know one of my own frustrations to to kind of echo some of what you said is during the pandemic when we were in this forced isolation i was incredibly frustrated when some fr friends didn't interact on whatsapp groups and then, so when I would message them individually, they didn't even respond to that in a sort of, you know, in a playful call and response attempt to just try and have yeah. dialogue about that day's daily briefing or, you know, like just to, to, to comment on the world around us. And it just struck me that idea that a lot of men see um, the, the sort of the absence of joy, a, a real dearth of joy in their lives. That struck me as a really big idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you've asked me this um, because I think this was one of the most um, profound things I learned as well. So I spoke to a psychologist in the, in, in the States called Ryan McKelly, who's done a lot of uh, TED Talks around masculinity. He also works as a, a therapist specialising in working with men. So he, he knows his onions here. And he, he said that a lot of men experience, and this is a direct quote, the death of joy. And why do they experience the death of joy? It's because he's saying that a lot of men, because we won't express emotion or we're, we're taught, socialised not to do that, we slowly become detached from it because we've repressed it from so long and we just don't feel the, the, um, the amazing emotions of life as thickly or as um, explicitly as, uh, as a lot often that women do. And he'd say he'd have men in his therapy office who would say, I, you know, I'd be, I'd be with my, my wife or my child and um, something would happen. Maybe a balloon was brought into the room and you'd see them light up and they'd be laughing. And they'd be going, wow. And these men would look at their, their wife or their kid and be like, oh, my God, I wish I could do that. I wish I could feel like that, which is, I mean, so grim. But then if you think about it, friendship in a more sort of specific way, we often don't like, I think, as guys, and this is a generalisation, talking about the great stuff. I mean, there's a lot of talk about men not talking about the hard stuff about their life, but even celebrating the amazing things or, or talking about things you really want. 
often we won't do that. And that's so much part of what a great friendship is. It's, it's about not just commiseration, but celebration. And we've got to be willing to let ourselves go there. Here's an, kind of a personal example from, from something that's happened to me. I went with a group of friends to see um, a cricket match last summer, one of the games in the 100. And uh, on the way out, we were just going through the gate, and my friend Ollie was looking through his phone, and um, he sk- skipped past a photo of, of a finger with a ring on it. I said, whoa, 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 what's that? What's that? He wasn't even trying to show me it. He said, oh, yeah, I've got engaged to uh, my girlfriend. I was like, what, what? We've been here for four hours, and you've not mentioned it. I said, but that's brilliant. I said, let's go. Let's go now and celebrate now. And I made him come with me and sort of, you know, ha- have a drink and sort of really enjoy that moment. But I don't think we had the, the way of exploring that or sitting in that or he didn't trust us to do it. But I just thought, wow, that's not a bad thing. That's a brilliant thing. And he, we were unwilling to do it. So... Absolutely, it's part of friendship. It's really interesting. I mean, along the way, you, you encounter Robin Dunbar and you chat to Dunbar, who's sort of transcended. His, his immortality lives in the sense that he's responsible for, for this number. I'd, I'd love to hear some of like the evolutionary science to this. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned there were sort of two main theories. The first one is what we've explored, which is that we're brought up to absorb these gender norms or what it means to be a man, and it gets in the way of intimacy. So the second theory, and Dunbar is probably the leading proponent of this. Dr. Robin Dunbar is an evolutionary psychologist, um, and he came up with Dunbar's number, which a lot of people would have heard, which is essentially a version of the social brain hypothesis, which says there's, because of the size of our brain, there is a limited number of fr- friendships or meaningful, stable relationships we can hold at any one time. And that number is, drumroll, 150. But what is maybe uh, more interesting about this is that 150 beneath it are a series of other numbers that suggest that our friendships or our key relationships happen in layers. So the first one is five, so that might be your, your spouse, a couple of friends, maybe a sibling. The next layer is 15, so another 10 people on top of that, then 25, 50, up to 150. Essentially, these expanding uh, le- levels of friendship of different levels of closeness. So that's all good. Now, what's interesting when it comes to men and friendship versus women as friendship is that Dunbar has done loads of research that suggests the male and female social world is actually very different. And there's quite a lot of evidence for this. So here's a a simple way of expressing the difference. Female friendships are often defined as being face-to-face, based around uh, talk, a lot of emotional disclosure. Women will often have one defined best friend, often that they're more intimate with than than their spouse, which is not what you get with men. Male friendships tend to be side by side, based around sharing activities, as in doing stuff together, often thriving in groups. So these are, they look very different. And then the, the theory goes that this is, comes from our deep in our evolutionary past where men and women would rely on their friends for different things. So for example, if you, and obviously we had different roles and these roles have changed, I should say. So women would require to have very close one-on-one friendships because if they were rearing children, if you were going to leave your baby with someone to pop up the road to get some water, whatever it was, you'd have to really trust that person. You had to really make sure they were going to look after your baby. And they that sense of closeness was crucial. Whereas uh, men would have to be hunting, they'd have to be often being the fighting cohort of, of groups. So they'd have to be able to form more casual group-based bonds and, and form these, these more hierarchical groupings. And so therefore, the theory goes 
social style, social preference, we don't recognize that, you know, deep evolutionary past anymore, but it's still reflected in how men and women live and do friendships in the modern world. And so when you chatted to Robin Dunbar and you explained your situation to him, what did he advise you to do? So <laughs> Dunbar is, is, is a fantastic bloke and, and talks about this stuff in a very witty way. I mean, he, he kind of laughed and said, I think you've, you've got to think about what a close friendship is a bit differently to maybe what you assume it is. So we mentioned that Movember study earlier, Bruce. And one of the key questions there was how many people could you have a conversation about health worry, money worry, work worry with? He said, maybe for men, intimacy or closeness looks a bit different. So you should stop obsessing over having better conversations and vulnerability and all that stuff and accept that for, for men, close friendship might be much more an intimacy based in doing, more of a covert intimacy. Um, so his big advice was, if you want to maintain friendships, you've got to do stuff. You've got to do the five-a-side leagues. You've got to get the guys together that you used to be good mates with and climb a mountain every couple of months or, you know, or equivalent. His big one was join a club. He said that is the number one thing you could do, join a club. Um, and so I did. I find this so intriguing, this idea that joining groups, joining clubs, it, it feels a bit too sort of Boy Scouts. It feels a bit too forced fun, doesn't it, for a lot of us? But um, I love the variety of attempts that have been made, whether they're men's sheds. <laughs> the attempt to try and create something that is going to get past this cynicism barrier that a lot of men have got. Yeah, absolutely. So men's sheds came out of Australia and it came from a very simple start where local governments in Australia were trying to solve male loneliness. And so they do things like put coffee mornings on and they'd find that older women would show up, but men never would. And eventually a slightly bawdy Australian guy said, I'll tell you what you want to do if you want to get men to show up is build a shed, give them some tools and let them get on with it. And so they did. Men's sheds were born. And it is the most successful intervention in male loneliness ever invented. I went to one in Teddington in, in West London. And it was just a shack with some tools in. And the lads would show up of various ages and they'd make and mend things. And the guy who ran it says, um, through, making and mend, through making and mending things together, we make and mend each other. And I thought, what a brilliant definition of friendship, which is famously hard to define. But what was interesting was most of the guys weren't in the shed fixing the pepper grinder or whatever one of them was doing. They were having a cup of tea and a chinwag. But what they needed was a pretense to get together. You've got to have a reason to be there, something to do, and then you can't stop men talking. But I think what's interesting about this is that it starts from the basis that men don't necessarily have something wrong with them. You've just got to design a context where their socialising will happen, which is a slightly different approach from the psych psychological approach, which is men need to learn all these new skills. There's probably truth in both, but that, that one with sheds, which we're exploring now, is maybe not one that is so um, of the now. It's got a real um, timeliness to all of this discussion because I guess the the truth is that a lot of us now are finding ourselves working from home. So where we might have built some rapport, some you know, some humorous engagements with with colleagues at work, maybe a degree of self revelation, you know, re revealing ourselves to colleagues and you know chatting to them. Some of those casual conversations have gone now, and a lot of us are living more isolated lives. And it begs, it it presents the potential that rather than this getting better that actually we might look back even on this era 
with some degree of nostalgia, thinking, well, at least there was some connection there. And uh, a more isolated future, you know, there's, there's some really interesting about the the way that we have a relationship with work and and people broadly are engaged with their jobs if they say that they've got a best friend at work now that's for men and women um but for people who work hybrid the latest research that came out a few weeks ago said that about 17 percent of people who work hybrid report having a best friend at work so even you know aside from your own Mm. proper bffs uh set up you know work was in some ways a proxy in some ways for this. And it found like, it sounds like actually in your own experience, sort of people that you worked with, you know, were on your potential best man list. So, so it could work as a proxy. It potentially, we could find ourselves seeing this get worse, I suspect. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. So as I was writing this book, a lot of it was over the pandemic and the pandemic is, is one of the biggest shifts in the social world in, in, in the history of man and womankind. So I think this could be a good thing or a bad thing. So from the from the perspective of work, what's great about work is it's a is it's a structure where we can meet people, and especially men, as I've said, rely on work more than women. So there's a, an interesting thing that came out of my research was if you look at retirement, bereavement, divorce, men suffer worse mental and physical health outcomes than women after those because they are more isolated. Those structures are really important for men. So having less friendships to, in the workplace, I would suggest is probably going to be a bigger problem for men than it is for women because they are more isolated generally. However, there's also a big opportunity here in that if you're spending less time at work, maybe there'll be a rise of localism and, and, and structures locally where you can make friends around there. As an example, near where I live, I live in Surbiton in southwest London now, I've joined this CrossFit gym, although you couldn't tell from looking at me. And I spoke to someone walking back from there the other day, and they said, oh, I always wear the T-shirt for this CrossFit gym because around town people stop me and say, oh, you're a member. I'm a member too. You must come to the social. Now, the fact that they can go to the CrossFit at 5 p.m. or at lunchtime because they, they are working from home is, in a sense, giving them another network. But losing that structure of work is putting all the impetus onto the individual to rebuild that, those social structures. And that's where I think it, mm. it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Are we going to be able to replace um, these structures? Because as Dunbar said, the structure is probably the most important thing about social life. Although we like to think it's spontaneity, structure is what keeps it going. Interesting. What In the sense that, you know, if you've got some old college friends that you studied with 10, 15, 20 years ago, Actually, it's the structure of having the discipline that we always meet up every November. It's just having that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those closed loops, which is why, you know, university and school especially are great, great ways of meeting people is because you, you you have that huge amount of time. There's some interesting research um, uh, that's come out about how long it takes to make a best friend. And it's research from people who've moved to new cities or gone to universities. And it's about 200 hours. And that's quite a long time. Mm. But what was it more interesting was it's the intensity of this time, not so spread out. It's the repeated interactions over a shorter period of time. So those those places, which is why clubs are so good, which is why workplaces are often great if you can have the social side of work lead to friendship. So if you lose those self-fulfilling loops and you don't replace them, 
you're then rely, relying on the, on the miracle of sinking diaries, of everything being front of mind, of you having the energy, the time and the headspace to organize your social world. Whereas actually we used to have what's known as third spaces, which is not work, which is not home, places in between, like a church, like a gym, like a coffee shop, where we would meet people. And that I, I, a lot of the people who I spoke to who are looking at loneliness say, this is one of the major societal changes, which is a challenge. And like you say, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. We might look back on this, even this era, with nostalgia. The, the best thing about the book is that because it's so light, it's so humorous, I, would, I, I don't want to say light in a pejorative way, it, like so um, incredibly readable, that you could see a woman gifting it to her partner saying, I've been reading a lot about this, and this sounds like it might be the answer to your... So so I, I wonder if you could sort of wrap it up with a bow for us in the sense that without doing the Hollywood happy ever after, what have you changed as a result of thinking about this? Um, just to speak to about women giving it to their husbands, generally women are more interested than men in this book, I'm finding. Why? Why do you think? I think because, here's why, men often treat the women in their lives as the HR department. Right. And they often will outsource the social work to them. They'll cuckold their social group because maybe theirs has become slightly withered or they don't want to do the work of maintaining friendships. And um, you mentioned the article, men have no friends and it's women that bear the brunt. I mean, this similar sort of idea is that men are much more reliant on their wives for the emotional support, but also literally to do the social stuff. I mean, a, a good example, I've written a whole book on this this weekend uh, me and my wife hang out with two couples, both her connections predominantly, she organized it and it was great. And I've got better. But I think a lot of men see themselves in that pattern. And a lot of women see their husbands. And I'm going to connect it back to that point to answer your question properly now, which is, you know, what have I done to change? There's, th- there's three things predominantly. One is that building these rituals, these structures, these routines, these activities. So I've not joined a men's shed. But what I have done is I run a fortnightly five-a-side league for friends, and I, I do all the organising. I text everyone. It's not very glamorous. It's not in a bow. It's not the end of a Hollywood movie. But that structure not that keeps us having a reason to meet up. We go to the pub afterwards. It's keeping everything going. I also run a thing called Pub Club, which is a similar sort of thing. Once a month, I rent a room out in a pub. I text everyone, and I, and I say, come if you can. And text someone, you've been, you've said those immortal words of male friendship, we must have a pint sometime, right? And just show up for one, two, three, four, soft drink, beer, whatever you fancy. The second thing is I've got this phrase called be the Sherpa, connected, I think, to the thing we've been talking about, about not relying on, on wives, girlfriends, female friends to do the social work. I spoke to a male friend who's, Brit, who's got great friendships, and he says, my mates call me the Sherpa because I organize everything. Um, and they say, they say to me, but if you didn't organize it, we'd never do anything, right? We'd never see each other. So I thought, be the Sherpa. And I'm, I'm always the one who goes first, who sends the texts, who, who organizes the meetups. And sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's easy, but that's something I'm a lot better on. And, and, and then finally, expand your toolbox. So have different ways of being with each other. So not just um, doing the banter stuff, not, not, also showing up and going first with the more vulnerable stuff. I'm much better now uh, confessing when I'm having a bit of a tough time or ringing someone up with some great news because I want to share it. And those sort of little acts of intimacy have made a massive difference. And sort of three rules I had is show up when asked till I stop showing up, 
that's why a lot of the time my friends disappeared. Go first when not and keep going even when it's hard. So those are the kind of nutshell things I think anyone can do. It doesn't have to be difficult, but you do have to do something. Firstly, I, I would say it's that degree of recognition. It's that, you know, re- recognising that you are in this zone where you're seeing your friends less frequently. Well, there's just less fun in your life. You're having less laughs than you, you had before um, and, and making a conscious decision. I love the Be the Sherpa one, though, because, you know, sometimes I, I, I arrange some annual drinks every year for some colleagues that I worked with so long ago that I wouldn't want to put a number to it. And every year everyone says to me, Man, thanks for arranging this. You wouldn't believe how easy it is to arrange this. <laughs> I literally get the email list from last year. I choose the day I'm going to do it. I name the place. It's the easiest thing. <laughs> the hardest part is writing two trivial, silly, ridiculous lines in the email saying, this is where we'll be. And every year, people say, thanks so much for doing it. It's like, it, this couldn't be easier. Yeah. This couldn't be easier. It, it's so funny. Like when I do the five-a-side thing, I always feel the same, I get the same feedback going, oh, thanks so much, mate. And then when we have a month off or something, because maybe like I've, I've done a load of press for the book and I've, I've, I've had to, I haven't been able to organise it. I get all these texts going like, when are we doing football? When are we doing football? And I say to them, it's, lads, it's not hard. Just email this email, but the pitch we already always play on. You've got the WhatsApp group. You're done. It would take you literally, like you say, no time at all. But then some guys just are not very good, like I was. Um, So, but but the trouble is, if if everyone in the group has that attitude, nothing changes. So you've got to be the one to be the Sherpa. And do you know what? Be the Sherpa. The thing that comes back to me on Twitter or LinkedIn or on conversations when people said, "Oh, I enjoyed your book," is be the Sherpa, that one phrase. And and I think that's great. I might have it put on a mug or something. Yeah, you should. I love it. I love it. Just a very simple call to arms for, yeah. for all of us to, to adopt. Fabulous. I've loved it. I, I read a lot of these books and that was by far the most enjoyable of the year. So um, so uh, thank you. I love I loved having the chance to chat to you. Oh, I've, I've always listened to this podcast, Bruce, and I get your newsletter. So when I found out you were interested in having a chat, I was delighted. So thank you for having me. Thank you to Max. Be the Sherpa. We can all be the Sherpa. It's amazing how easy it is to to be the Sherpa. And I think there's an application for all of us in our jobs, but as well as in our home lives. Be the person who organises the fun stuff and having no embarrassment about embracing fun stuff, doing stuff. I've really enjoyed that discussion. It made me reflect on my own life. I, you know, like everything, we all think we're better than average at everything. Um, and I think I'm broadly better than average at that, but it made me think a lot about it. So uh, reach out to a friend. Be the Sherpa. Arrange something. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.